This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Tonight, the forgotten worldwide protests erupt against Israel. But no signs are held up for the hostages ripped from their families by Hamas. And while American Jews face an unrelenting rise in anti-Semitism, many begin to protect themselves any way they can. The challenger... We have to raise strong girls. Strong girls become strong women. Strong women become strong leaders. Nikki Haley has her moment in the sun, but can she maintain her momentum to take on the dawn of her party? Happier Thanksgiving. Consumers are getting a bit of a break this holiday season, but could this short-term gain come back to bite us? And personal foul, the NFL sideline reporter who admits, well, she made things up. So is it harmless white lies or just... It wasn't lies, it was just... See, now that's a... All right, welcome to The Ferris Show on television. I'm Elizabeth Pran. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, as we begin, uh, we are notably, if you will, the nation vibrating with instability just days before a holiday that in some ways is known for bringing us all together. This is a live picture from New York. This isn't last week or yesterday. This is live. Yet another march, this one called Shut It Down for Palestine. But it's not just the Big Apple. It's everywhere from Idaho to Iowa alike. Look at this map. We have it blurred for very obvious reasons. You can see on your screen, it's the island of Manhattan. You see the red and the gray blocks pointing out places in the city from newsrooms to businesses and landmark buildings called for a direct action to globalize intifada. The group within our lifetime, which describes itself as a Palestinian-led community organization, called for followers to target the offices of technology companies as well. So earlier, protesters broke into Fox News and Mellon Bank in New York, where at least 20 people were arrested. You can hear them cheering, free Palestine, free, free Palestine. Police surround the group and they keep cheering. It's been echoing across America, not free the hostages, but free Palestine. So just remember, these are protests against America's strongest ally, Israel, and in support of the base from which the terror attacks occurred. None of these marchers are carrying signs in support of Israeli hostages all of them ripped from their families, still in conditions that we just don't know. Except for two more today, we know that bodies were found and identified by Israeli forces. As the protests continue, Congressman Dan Goldsman's office in Brooklyn was vandalized overnight. Vandals painted Free Palestine and Let Gaza Live, among other messages. Representative Goldman's office said harassing, intimidating, and outright attacking the staff of a Jewish elected official at a time of rising violence and rampant anti-Semitism is dangerous and unacceptable. 
In Israel, the plight of hostages are the subject of intense military operations as the Israeli Defense Forces have released new videos of tunnels underneath Gaza's hospitals. So this is the same system which intelligence officials believe these men, women, and children are underground. Hamas releasing video today of one of those hostages whose body was found, an elderly Israeli's man. He died while in their custody. Hamas blamed Israel. They said that the bombing was making that man succumb to his heart condition, a completely unbelievable statement of a man being held hostage by armed terrorists. That being said, ongoing hostage negotiations do continue, but Hamas demands that Israel stop flying surveillance drones over their airspace. And they say that they need to do this, but they want to do it during a pause in military operations in exchange for freeing hostages. The Israeli military has been flying drones over the skies of Gaza for hours on end, virtually every day during military operations. They're using them as a primary means of surveillance to monitor the battlefield. I do want to bring in our News Nation, Robert Sherman. He is live from Israel on the ground as there is ongoing talk about hostage negotiations. Robert, can you tell us what the latest is? Elizabeth, there is such a growing pressure on the ground here in Israel for something to be done about the hostage situation. We're seeing families of hostages marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, a five-day march to demand the Israeli government do more. There's this feeling among those families that time is of the essence with their loved ones being in captivity for over 40 days and no deal being in sight. That can especially be said for the family of Ari Zalmanovich after Hamas released a propaganda video of him today in their custody. He was abducted from kibbutz near Oz October 7th, and his family is especially concerned for him because he has medical conditions. The IDF not confirming his status from those videos there. We're making the decision to not show that there. But this week, there were the bodies of two hostages that were found near Al-Shifa Hospital. That would be uh, one, uh, Yahulit Weiss, a cancer patient who's in her 60s, and then Noah Marciano, a 19-year-old IDF soldier. Marciano's body was returned and laid to rest today. And then, to put all this into perspective, there are some families who have no idea what to expect. That would be the case for Emily Hand. Family thought that she was dead after her kibbutz was burned to the ground, and they had to bring an archaeologist to sift through the ashes in order to determine who was dead and who wasn't. They couldn't find her DNA, so now believe that she's being held by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And the big fear that they had was is that she'd be celebrating her birthday alone, in the dark, in captivity. Today, November 17th, is Emily Hand's ninth birthday. Elizabeth. Hmm. All right, Robert, thank you so much. It's absolutely unbelievable. In fact, we spoke with a former IDF soldier earlier. His name is Moshe Lavi. He's a former captain. Um, his sister, as well as his two nieces, and his brother-in-law were living in their kibbutz at the time of the attack on October 7th. Uh, his brother-in-law was, in fact held captive, is held captive, his sister is free, but we spoke with him earlier, and he gave really a harrowing account of what his sister and his nieces went through. Their last words to their, their loved one was, I love you, and they say they may never be able to say those words again. Here he is. We spoke to him earlier. Moshe, I, I can't put into words how grateful I am that you are here with us tonight. 
First and foremost, how is your sister doing? How are your nieces doing? Before we get into some of the nuances and the pieces that you've written. Good evening, and, and thank you for letting me speak with you tonight. Um, my nieces and sister endured a, a terrible, significant trauma, um, and they're still grappling with it. And I, I'm sure they'll keep grappling with it for the rest of their lives as the survivors of the October 7th massacre. But uh, my sister is strong. Uh, she's doing all she can to bring back Omri. She speaks everywhere. Um, and um, she also takes care of the two baby, baby daughters she has, uh, one of whom, uh, Ronnie, is two and a half years old, completely understand what she went through, speaks of it, and misses her father dearly. Yeah, and I know in your piece that she wants to say, I love you again. Those were their last words. It's absolutely gut-wrenching, the first-hand account of October 7th that you documented through your sister. Uh, you said in your piece, you know, my family is not a political pawn. What did you mean by that? What I try to express in my um, guest essay on the, on the New York Times is that we, our family, and I think many families of hostages, have been with a few over the past week in Washington, D.C., uh, meeting with lawmakers there, um, tired of being used um, as, as a political, within the political discourse. I think it's imperative to understand that this is a humanitarian issue at its core. The hostages should be released. They're held unjustly. They were taken unjustly and violently. Uh, they are not being visited by the international um, community, by the uh, Red Cross, the ICRC, or other international organizations. And um, we have no information about them or their well-being. And what is important So, for and if I may, and I, I, don't, I don't want to be rude, sir, and I, I don't want to interrupt you, but when you talk to lawmakers, can you explain to me how... How do you feel as if you're being used? Because that, that, that could help lawmakers to, to move, to make more action, no? I think the main, the main issue is that the polit hateful political discourse we've seen, mainly on the streets and social media, uh, the call for uh, one action or another, doesn't ent take into account that we are dealing with human beings held captive. What I emphasize with the lawmakers I met this week, my sister has been meeting many back in Israel, um, is that we want them to take effective action to put pressure on the relevant stakeholders. If I speak with U.S. lawmakers, put pressure on the administration, put pressure on international stakeholders like Qatar, which hosts Hamas and has many leverages over Hamas, and even put pressure on, on Israel to make sure that the issue of the hostages is on top of the agenda and is not uh, within the political discourse, but rather within the humanitarian discourse. Right. You know, and if I, we, we don't have much time, I certainly wish you could join us for the whole show. But my, my question to you is, someone who is a victim, when you see this discourse play out and you feel as if your family is a pawn, how does that make you feel? Does, how, how are you feeling? What... what what I try to do is to make sure we're not distracted by that noise um, and are focusing on advocating for me, my brother-in-law, and all the hostages. 
obviously seeing what is taking place um, uh, on the streets, in social media, in other avenues, in um, college campuses, etc., um, is is hurtful. But my mission is to make sure the issue of Dawson just remains on the top of the agenda until they are released and return home to their loved ones. Yeah, and I suspect, Moshe, that you said you've been meeting with other families. That that, that is the sentiment. And, um, you know, we're, we're grateful that you joined us tonight. We're thinking of your family. We're thinking of your nieces. We're thinking of your brother-in-law in, in such a, a horrific time. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And I wish peace on us all. All right, coming up next, it's Nikki Haley's moment, and it appears she's really running with it. New polls show that she could be the one candidate to take on and maybe even beat the two older front runners for the presidency. We'll have that story coming up next. Well, we don't have to tell you that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. You probably are heading out tomorrow to do some shopping. You've probably heard the hype from some of the networks about lower prices at the grocery store. This year, something to be thankful for. A feast that won't break the bank. The big meal is affordable. The inflation is curbing from last year's 40-year high. Aldi says they'll be slashing prices up to 50%. Walmart is now promising to remove inflation by cutting prices on holiday favorites. I can't. And to be fair, prices are down from last year. That is a good thing. But the American Farm Bureau says a Thanksgiving meal for 10 is down around $3. So we're going to celebrate that. But context is key. You're still paying $12 more than you did in 2019. So all that talk is really great American deflation when it comes with an asterisk, right? Including the rosy commentary from the Walmart CEO, Doug McMillan. In the U.S., we'll offer the items for a Thanksgiving meal at a lower price than last year as we did in Canada. We'll keep working with our suppliers to get more prices down as quickly as possible. And he has a lot to be thankful for. Walmart's profits over the last three months topped $450 million. Can you imagine? So they spent more than a billion dollars on stock buybacks, and he's making $24 million a year. That's $24 million. So you can argue Walmart could afford maybe to drop prices just a little bit more for the rest of us, and we'll see if they do. But yes, we are heading in the right direction. I want to bring in Trish Reagan, former Goldman Sachs analyst and host of The Trish Reagan Show. Trish, thank you so much for joining us. My first question to you is, and I I don't want to get into the two nuances, right? But are we experiencing deflation or is inflation cooling a little bit? $3, I I don't, I don't want to take it for granted, but we're still seeing a little bit of sticker shock. I know anecdotally when we go to the store. Sure. I mean, look, I I don't think that we can go so far as to say we're looking at deflation. And by the way, deflation comes with a whole other set of problems, Elizabeth. We just want to kind of tame this inflation that's been, oh, I don't know, just off the charts, unlike anything that we've seen probably since the 1970s. I I, I look at sort of the recent reads we've gotten on inflation. You look at what the predictions are, say, for your Thanksgiving Day meal cost. And sure, things are settling a little bit. Is it deflation, as the Walmart CEO seems to be suggesting? I don't think so. I don't think you could have printed that much money for that long and then take one 
month's data and say, we're in a totally different scenario. And by the way, you don't want to be in a massive deflation scenario either, because then guess what? Nobody buys anything because they sit around and wait for prices to go down. Neither of these right. are really good. Okay. You know, you want the Goldilocks Okay. Thing. What is contributing to the cool off? Because when it started to heat up, people were saying, oh, it's, it's because the resources, it's the war in Ukraine, or it's the AV, uh, you know, the bird flu. But those things are still ongoing. Is it because both of those things have cooled off or are those just two very small factors in a much larger macro picture? Well, look, I think that at some point, you know, you reach this equation, which should have been reached earlier on, where prices are just too high and people consequently pull back. You don't have a strong enough economy underlying all this to support those very, very high prices. I mean, and that's partly by design. The Federal Reserve was like, wait a second, you know, things are getting a little too hot and heavy here, so we need to we need to slow things down. And in, in doing so, yes, by slowing things down, there aren't as many people, say, raking it in the way they might have been before, and therefore they are pulling back, right? And maybe a lot of people who are out there traveling and enjoying life are saying, hey, you know, maybe it's time to go back to work. Or maybe I've spent all my vacation money by now. And so they're not as, you know, they're not as spendthrift. And consequently, yes, prices should come down. But again, I look at this as kind of a one-off because we're still way above where we were. I don't know. I mean, it's great. Like, I'll take it, right? I'll take good numbers, uh, prices coming down and sort of coming back to reality any day of the week. But whether or not this is real or whether or not we see a real rush for consumers to buy, buy, buy during the Christmas season, et cetera, you know, if they do, then you're looking at more inflation. So it's a very touchy thing. It's a very tricky thing. I, I don't envy the Fed, but they do have a, a history, shall we say, of, of getting this wrong. Right. And, and to go back to my, and we only have about 30 seconds left, but to go back to my Biden question, I think as a consumer, I was a little bit cynical when I read the headlines too. And this is, listen, this is not necessarily my expertise, but I'm a mother of three. And so I have, I have felt inflation as all of us have. But when I see the initial report, I think to myself, well, wait a second, you know, I got a little skeptical. Is this something that's getting pushed by the administration? Is this something oh, that sure. I'm told to believe is better? Is it really better? Is that wrong? I Am I know. wrong? I mean, that, so you're, you're, you're right to be skeptical. And you're a mom. I'm a mom. We know, right? Like, we're doing the grocery shopping. I joke that women are like the CFOs. And it's not really a joke. We are the CFOs of our family. So we see it every single day. You can sit there and tell us Binomics is working. But when we're like, wait a second, you know, the price of the value meal at McDonald's is now what, 16 bucks in New York City, you start to say, hey, you know what? I don't really think the binomics thing is all that. As you mentioned, listen, moms are, are the CFOs and we see it and we talk about it. Believe it or not, that's what we talk about. So Trish, thank you so much. This is a hot topic for a lot of families you. as we head into the holidays. It's great to see you on a different platform, but I'm grateful yes. to be with you and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right, introducing our first female president, Nikki Haley. It's not out of the question in 2024. She's gaining a lot of steam in the polls. Have you been paying attention? A new CNN poll shows Haley beating Biden head-to-head by 10 percentage points. So that's beyond the margin of error. Trump would defeat Biden by four points, while DeSantis would edge him out by about two. We're going to throw some more numbers at you, uh, but 
but they're telling. That's why. In New Hampshire, the latest poll has Trump at 42 percent, Haley at 20, Christie 14, DeSantis at 9, and Vivek around 8. While that's a double-digit lead for Trump, the number shows that the majority of Republicans and independents say that they might actually prefer someone else. The jury is still out. Plus, if Trump is convicted of inciting an insurrection, he can't be president anyway. So we would also be remiss if we didn't give some credit to Vivek Ramaswamy for helping Haley make her mark. This is how. Honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber. She made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. You're just the easy answer. You have no foreign me. policy experience and it shows and you know- he might have a girl problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying he might have a girl problem. Remember all those moments? Joining me now is the A-Team, Niall Stanish, White House columnist for our partners at The Hill, Lauren Wright, associate research scholar and lecturer in politics and public affairs at Princeton University. All right, Lauren, I do have to start with Niall on this one just because Niall and I have already had this discussion this week, so Niall, no it may feel like deja vu to you. Uh, it may feel like deja vu, but, you know, I want to start with second is great, but second is not first, Right. That is certainly true. I don't think there could be any dispute on that point, Elizabeth. And someone was saying exactly this to me as I was reporting on this issue earlier today. It's all very well that there's this drama as to who's going to be second between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. But to what end? We don't make the second place finisher the nominee. They're not guaranteed to be vice president or in a cabinet or anything like that. So, yes, it is very interesting. There's a lot of fieriness around this contest for second. But the reality of the matter is that both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are lagging former President Trump by something of the order of 40 points nationally. That is an enormous gap to try to close, particularly since, let's not forget, we're only a couple of months away now from the Iowa caucuses. I know, it feels like it's, it's fast approaching, doesn't it? Uh, so, Lauren, you know, what needs to happen to close the gap? We see him really maybe getting some new digs in Iowa, but you got to win Iowa, you got to win New right. Hampshire, you got to win Super Tuesday, or at least at least two out of the three. Am I right? Yes, she would have to win early states, and winning early states, which it doesn't always happen, uh, would have to change the trajectory of the race. And so even if she does win those states, there's no guarantee Trump won't still be the nominee. I do think, even though we're talking about the race for second place, there's some interesting dynamics going on here for national politics. It is difficult to campaign as a woman, no matter which party you're in. I know we've talked about it before, Elizabeth, but Nikki Haley's doing this tightrope walk pretty well. You know, women are seen as more progressive automatically than they actually are. She has this middle-of-the-road approach on abortion, and it's showed that it's not costing her necessarily support from Republicans. And so she's paving a policy path that I think is really interesting. What I'm watching for is when is she going to take on Trump head-to-head. She needs to explain why in 2021 she said if he's running she won't campaign against him and she's reversed course on that and needs to explain why he should not be the president. I think people want to hear that from her. Well, and and Niall, I would like you to respond to that a little bit because when I ask, you know, how are we going to, how is she going to push the dial? 
I'm not really saying that it, it, we were kind of dogging being in second place. It's actually maybe not the worst place in, in historically we've seen people win if they were in second place at this point, even lower. So it's not necessarily out of the question, but does she have to do something new, unique, and different? One of the difficulties she really faces comes down to this argument about electability. And it's a kind of complicated picture this year because on one hand, we look at the polls, some of which you played in the introduction, and there's really very little doubt that Nikki Haley would be the strongest Republican candidate in a general election. Every indication is she would wallop President Biden, who after all has low approval ratings, is the oldest president in history, about 70 or 75% of all voters think he's too old to serve a second term. The problem for Haley is a lot of polls now also show former President Trump beating Biden. And that means that Nikki Haley can't argue this guy's unelectable and I'm electable. It's kind of gradations of electability. And that becomes, I think, a less potent argument. Okay, Lauren, I don't know if you're going to like this one. I'm going to ask you to keep it short and nobody likes to do these. Okay, I will. We're coming up. Uh, Who's going to take Iowa? I mean, that sets the tone. It always sets the tone. Everyone's been spending a lot of time in Iowa. Yeah, you know, I don't think DeSantis is out of the question. He has apparently a really impressive ground game. That's what propelled Ted Cruz to victory last time around. So I would not uh, count him out for that. However, Trump is leading the polls there. All right. Well, Niall and Lauren, I hope to see you both there. I'm so grateful for your time. And we'll have no shortage of things to talk about between now and November. So thank you very much. And we do have some exciting news on our end, News Nation. News Nation is your home for the next Republican primary debate, the last of this year. The GOP presidential candidates will square off in a live primetime event. It's going to be at the University of Alabama. That's Wednesday, December 6th. We have SiriusXM's Megyn Kelly and News Nation's Elizabeth Vargas will moderate the two-hour event in partnership with the Washington Free Beacon. The News Nation uh, Republican primary debate, again, live from Alabama, Wednesday, December 6th. We hope you're able to watch. Next, tough times for, well, a lot of folks, a lot of Jews across the country, and that means tough measures. Jewish Americans are responding to really a rising tide of anti-Semitism by arming themselves. We're going to take a look at the pros and the cons coming up ahead. Welcome back. I don't have to tell you now that it's been six weeks since Hamas murdered 1,200 Israelis in their own homes. And since then, we've seen a rapid rise in support, not for the victims, but in support of Palestinians. And in some cases, Hamas terrorists themselves. The ADL reported a 315% rise of assault, harassment, and vandalism of Jews in the month following Hamas's attack on Israel. That's a 315% rise over the same period last year. So it's It's just mind-boggling how prevalent it is in America today. This week, Elon Musk responded to an usher who accused Jewish people uh, of hating white people and, quote, showing indifference to anti-Semitism with, quote, you have said the actual truth. So let that sink in for a minute. You have said the actual truth to a tweet about Jews hating white people. The White House responded today saying we condemn this abhorrent promotion of anti-Semitic and racist hate in the strongest terms, which runs against our core values as Americans. 
Now, three of America's biggest companies, Disney, IBM, and Apple, have all paused ad sales on the platform, and that obviously hit them, hit them where it does hurt, right? It's all about money. All of this has led many American Jews to think about protection, and many have turned to exercising their Second Amendment right. Gun stores have seen an increase in gun purchases from Jewish Americans and an increase in those taking gun safety classes. Joining me now, Florida gun store owner David Kowalski. David, I'm so grateful that you're here with us. First and foremost, tell me what you're seeing down there in the Sunshine State. I mean, there's obviously been a surge of, of people purchasing firearms, uh, you know, both in couples, elders. Uh, we did have a couple here the other day. The, the husband was 82 years old. The wife was 77, I do believe. Uh, both wanted to get their concealed carries, uh, went through the process, uh, did some shooting. And, um, you know, they, they were actually very uh, adamant about being able to protect themselves. Uh, a tremendous increase in, you know, people coming in, couples wanting to protect themselves with the rise of anti-Semitism, as well as, you know, threats of violence uh, against the Jewish population. Right. And when you bring up this demographic, we're seeing it not just in Florida, we're seeing it all over the country. In fact, we heard from Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, really just a little more than a week ago. And this is what he had to say. And I'd like you to respond. Here it is. Is a threat that is uh, reaching in some ways sort of historic levels, um, in part because, uh, as you know all too well, the Jewish community uh, is targeted by terrorists really across the spectrum. Historic levels, David, but these are people who may not be comfortable with firearms. I mean, I, I don't want to cast a wide net or be judgmental, but typically uh, the Jewish population may not have been in favor of arming themselves prior to this. Are you hearing that as well? So absolutely. I mean, there, you know, the ADL, you know, other organizations have indicated a tremendous ride, 400 percent, I do believe, in anti-Semitic actions, uh, as well as, you know, we see rallies popping up all over the country, not only anti-Israel, anti-Jews, but anti-America as well. Um, The people are receiving death threats. There's graffiti. There's script on synagogues, Jewish homes, you know, death to Jews, and it is very disconcerting. So, uh, you know, if this is not necessarily a, a normal customer that you're seeing, and you have folks at home, you know, what are you telling them? Are you telling them that this is, obvi- this is obviously something, the Second Amendment right, that you're very passionate about, but I also know that you're passionate about your family and your core moral values. So what, what type of conversations are you having with folks? Because what you're having with folks there in Florida is happening all over the country. We're seeing it in New York. We're seeing it on the West Coast. We're seeing it all over. So I'm re- being reached out. Obviously, I'm, in, I'm located in Florida, but I'm being contacted by people all over of how to protect themselves and their families. Obviously, gun laws are different depending, varying on state to state. Some options not available to other people. You know, vigilance is a very important thing. Understanding the ability to protect yourself is something that's crucial. Um, as we're law enforcement and other agencies do a fantastic job. Um, as we saw what happened in Maine a few weeks ago, law enforcement arrived 90 seconds after the tragedy that unfolded. Nine people were dead. You know, more than a dozen were wounded. And that was in less than 90 seconds. Um, I'll ask you just one more question, you know, and I think you can elaborate. You were, you were getting to it. 
I'm curious, as someone who is passionate about the Second Amendment, how does this make you feel in the time that we're living in right now? I mean, I, I'm very passionate about the Second Amendment. I'm also very passionate about firearm safety, um, which means that if a person is not comfortable owning a firearm, I don't encourage them to purchase one. Um, I encourage them to get trained. I encourage them to, you know, have responsible ownership. I also, you know, explain to them the psychological impacts of what may unfold. Um, you know, having a self-defense firearm is very different than having a firearm you purchase and lock up in a safe. Um, so a lot of training, a lot of information comes into it. Um, I, you know, as where I am a Second Amendment advocate, I also believe in being cautious and understanding because owning a firearm is your Second Amendment right. However, if you don't understand the basic knowledge and understand how to properly engage in a self-defense situation, you could be putting other people at risk. You know, David, I think that's such a, a valid point. In some of these articles that I read across the country, it's not necessarily just a huge spike in gun ownership. It's a huge spike in gun education. It's, it's classes that are sold out. It's classes that are at capacity. So I do feel as if there's an effort for knowledge um, as there is for protection. I'm grateful that you joined us uh, tonight to give us some perspective. Thank you so much. All right, have you heard of this story? Carissa Thompson, host of Sunday's Fox NFL kickoff and Thursday Night Football on Amazon, just this week admitted in her early days as a sideline reporter that she would often make up reports when the coaches or the players wouldn't talk to her. And then the very next day, she was back on TV. I've said this before, so I haven't been fired for saying it, but I'll say it again. Um, I would make up the report sometimes because, A, the coach wouldn't come out at halftime or it was too late. And I was like, I didn't want to screw up the report. So I was like, I'm just going to make this up because, first of all, no coach is going to get mad if I say, hey, we need to stop uh, hurting ourselves. We need to be better on third down. We yep. need to stop turning the ball Pressure over. The quarterback. We need, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and do a better job of getting off the field. Like, they're not going to correct me on that. Right. So I'm like, it's fine. I'll it just make up the report. Wow. Well, her colleagues took to X, formerly known as Twitter, with their disappointment. That would be an understatement. Catherine Tappan said, deplorable. I hold myself to the highest standard in everything I do. Molly McGrath said, young reporters, this is not normal or ethical. Tracy Wolfson, this is absolutely not okay. Not the norm and upsetting on so many levels. And so many more spoke out against her. I want to bring in Scott Hamilton, sports journalist, and host of the Scott Hamilton Show on FanStream Sports WBT. You know, I'm so glad that you're joining me for this. I'm actually very curious about what you have to say. What was your reaction when you heard this? I mean, when I first heard it, I, my jaw was kind of on the ground. So she said, well, they're not going to be mad. Well, I mean, even if someone said, Elizabeth said she was beautiful, I'd still be like, wait a second, I never said that. I... Elizabeth, think about this. We have enough of a problem right now with credibility in journalism. And, and, and once you lose your credibility, it's so hard to get it back. It's so hard to get it back. A lot of people don't get it back. And when I heard this, my jaw dropped to the floor. I, and she seemed so flippant about it. Now, she's apologized today. She came out and said she was sorry. But she also said she used the wrong words. And Elizabeth, this is what really just grinds my gears. She's a professional communicator. How do you use the wrong words? How do you miscommunicate what you were trying to say? You lied about a report. You are lucky to have a job next week. I don't know how they don't punish her for this. I, I, going, and what about her coworkers? 
Because we're going to look at them now going, well, are they making it up? Is the great Holly Rowe, has she been making things up? Erin uh, Andrews, has she been making things up? It's just a black mark on, on the profession, not only sports, but all the media. Yeah, so we're going to put her, her apology up, the one that you mentioned. She put it, uh, it was multiple pages on Instagram, and this is a piece of it. Um, and you can see there, uh, I'm sorry, I have never lied about anything or been unethical during my time as a sports broadcaster. Uh, you know, uh, my, and this was around, I think that she's about 500,000 followers on social media. That's just on Instagram. She's on, on other social media platforms. But I'm curious if there are going to be repercussions here because, you know, what if she did say it in jest? I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. What if she was just doing it for attention? She was just speaking off the cuff and being funny on a, on a podcast on, or with, with her friends or whatever she was doing. Well, is that as damning if she did it in jest? This is serious business. And again, it goes back to credibility. If you're kidding around about lying as a reporter, that's serious business. And if she was joking, let's play devil's advocate. She was joking. She waited a long time before issuing an apology. She's got a lot of explaining to do going forward for her apology, as well as what she initially said. You know, and I, I thought about that as well. It was, a, it was quite some time before we did see the apology. Um, you know, the, the, my last question to you is, we, we always say, you know, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, are we in this era of social media where we all do whatever it takes to make sure that we get that deadline? I mean, we're in a 24-hour news cycle. I know that this is sports, but the pressure is on. You have millions of people, and you need to have content. The short answer is no. The longer answer is she's with these coaches leading up. She knows what they want. She knows what they don't want. If they don't want to speak to her, she could paraphrase what they've said and juxtapose it to what's happening and set the scene. Couldn't speak with coach so-and-so, but he told me earlier in the week he was hoping they wouldn't run that kind of defense. And guess what? They did, and that's why they're down two touchdowns right. or whatever. Just this is egregious. All right. Scott Hamilton, thank you so much. I appreciate your passion. All righty, Elizabeth, see you. Coming up, the, it's good to see you, the mysterious case that spawned the Netflix docuseries, Take Care of Maya, joins us with a new turn. We have Chris joining us with that coming up. All right, welcome back. You know this name, Maya Kowalski, is suing a Florida hospital for sexual assault. Many of you may remember Maya, the little girl whose mother was accused of Munchausen and killed herself. Maya is indeed very sick, suffering from complex regional pain syndrome. She's now 17 years old. She was just awarded $260 million in damages in her civil lawsuit against the hospital. Chris is here. He's joining us to preview um, his show. He'll be speaking with Maya just a little bit later. Chris, this story is mind-boggling when you, when you learn all the details of what this family has been put through. So you have, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So you have the illegality and just moral turpitude wrapped up in separating the child from the mother for so long uh, on the bogus recognition of what's called factitious disorder imposed on another, what you and I know as Munchausen by proxy. And they stopped doing that because uh, they believe that Baron von Munchausen uh, was known for telling stories that weren't true, but that cheapens what this really is. So they've changed the clinical term. So that's one thing that brought the judgment. But during the trial, Maya, I want to say it the right way, Maya had a recalled memory 
Now, a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable with this. It doesn't make sense. What do you mean? Either you know or you don't know. It's not how it works, especially with abuse with children, um, with younger people. They didn't get it into the trial, so they're bringing it now. I was not in a hurry to disturb Maya in the wake of this. She's a young person. The family's got a lot mm -hmm. to process, but they want to speak about this. So counsel and Maya are welcome to come on to say why they're bringing the action, what happened in their opinion, and what they want next. All right. Well, we're certainly going to be tuning in, Chris. I mean, I know you're a parent. I can't even be away from my child when they're at school, so I can't fathom what this family went through. Um, we'll all be tuning in. Thank you for joining us. Mm. Thank you, and have a good weekend. Next up. Yeah, you as well. You as well. Uh, we're going to have one more segment before we get to Chris. And why on earth do people agree to take it all? I mean, take it off. I mean, really take it off on TV, the full Monty. We'll explain when we come back. Just when you think TV can't get any weirder, enter Naked Attraction, a British dating show that was a surprise hit to the HBO streaming service Max in September. The contestants, well, their bodies are gradually revealed, leaving the person choosing the date the ability to judge them and scrutinizing them until they're either eliminated or they're picked for the date. And when I tell you that they are completely nude, they are completely nude. Star of the show, Stephen Barrett, who has been on for two seasons, joins me now. Stephen, you know, when I think of doing something crazy and out there, I usually think of, like, skydiving or, you know, like going for a hike. But for you, it was being a contestant on a show that is now arguably been seen by millions and millions of people what 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 are you thinking uh it was it was the most liberating experience of my life it's just i wanted to do something mad and crazy i was i was i hit 40 i was 43 i think when i went on and i just wanted to do something a little bit more out there and i just decided I mean, to go were you on nervous it. i was very nervous i even took i tried i took a viagra it did nothing Nothing happened down there. It was just literally, I was, more, I was really scared. I was more worried. I mean, you guys, we have no control over nothing down there. When you get nervous, you've got no control. It's literally dead. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but, you know, Stephen, <laughs> what, did you, what did you tell your mom? What about your mom? My mum's 83. She only knows I've been on it once, and I've actually been on it twice. So she doesn't know the full extreme and it, it, I've led into more work. I've led, I've led into doing OnlyFans now from doing that since being naked. Um, and she's unaware of that as well, bless her. She's 83. So hopefully she doesn't watch this channel. Uh, did you ever think it would get this popular? No, not at all. I mean, since it's gone on America, I've got people from America messaging me, you know, they're slipping to my DMs, they're Googling me. You can Google Stephen Lewis Barrett and find me anywhere now. And it's just become a, a household in the UK. It's like Naked Attraction Star. So, yeah, it's really stuck with me, to be honest. It, it, it's been great. I, I know, I can't. It's, it's helped my work. I, I, I've stopped being a builder now. I now just do OnlyFans. I'm naked all of the time. So if there's any TV shows in America that want me on there, naked, I'll right. be fully aware to come back. Well, Stephen, I wish we had more time. I wish you the very best, I'll admit. Um, I haven't seen it, but I, again, I wish you the very best, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you at home. I wish we had more time, but now I'm going to toss it This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.